Well, thank you all for leading us in that worship. That was, um, that was fantastic. Hopefully, uh, everyone, or at least every family, maybe, has been able to grab a, a copy of, uh, of my notes. I realize that there's some danger in just giving out my notes. While I was down in my office, um, I noticed two typos. So normally, I would just be able to skip right over those, but now you have evidence of, uh, of all of my wrongdoing. And uh, so anyway, hopefully these notes are helpful to you. I, I don't know. Hopefully they're not too cumbersome, but you could just sit there and listen. You don't necessarily have to look at them, but uh, maybe they could be uh, a resource to you in the future just to remember some of the things that, that, we've, uh, that we've gone over. But tonight we're looking in Ezra, uh, chapter 1, and then uh, a little bit later, because really um, one of the most helpful ways to go through books like Ezra and Nehemiah sometimes is not to go through verse at a time. I would hope that you could just read a verse at a time, maybe while we're going through these. You could read Ezra and Nehemiah. They're not incredibly long, um, but you could read through them and just familiarize yourself with what's going on. One of, a, one of the helpful ways to, to kind of see what's happening is to look at themes, and so the themes show up in both books. They show up in a few different chapters. And tonight, one of the themes is God and governments. And that's what I've entitled this, this second uh, sermon. Of course, the first was really just kind of getting handles. It was a, some background information, God's redemptive history story, what's going on in the Genesis to Revelation story in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, but tonight, we're going we're gonna to ask and, and hopefully answer this question. What does it mean uh, to live on earth but to serve the king of a different kingdom? What does it mean to kind of navigate the decisions that we have to make here and now? And, and, and furthermore, what does it mean to interact with our governments, with authorities over us, when we know that we have an ultimate authority in God? Uh, and so these are questions that that we have to, to flesh out in different ways. And uh, clearly, we have had things incredibly, incredibly good in this country, and we continue to. Uh, we do not experience uh, persecution here. We experience from time to time and in different places in our country some pressure. Okay, And so clearly, if you were listening to the sermon that I gave this morning, I think that it's possible that in the, in the fullness of time, uh, years from now, uh, the heat may be turned up just because of the secularizing of our culture that's taking place. Um, there are people who are a, a little more knowledgeable than I am about these things who are writing books that I would point you to. Rod Dreher has, wrought, has bought, uh, written a couple of books. Uh, a few years ago, he wrote a book called The Benedict Option, which is a call for Christians to, to solidify their institutions um, to, to make sure that uh, that we are educating our children in such a way that's not just kind of giving them over to the state uh, fully. Of course, uh, in a place like Trenton, Kentucky, we can uh, we can trust um, you know our, our schools and we can have a close kind of a, a local um, eye on the things that are going on in our in our uh, schools and and the kind of worldview that is being taught. Uh, so we're, we're very blessed in a number of ways, and for that reason. Uh, you know, at a church like ours, we have great institutions here, long history of, of institutions. Uh, but because of where we live, we may be the last ones to feel some of the pressure. Uh, 
you know, so I've actually spoken with, I have a number of friends um, who, in, in places in the United States, there are times when, when they, as a pastor, preach on certain topics and just simply speak the words of the Bible, it becomes quite controversial, and they encounter a little bit of friction with their local authorities and local governments. Uh, a friend of mine in Nova Scotia, Canada, of course, uh, the, the, the climate is a little bit different there, and um, uh, there's, there's one church that I know of on, on the island of Cape Breton that preaches the gospel. And, of course, they've actually planted a couple of churches now. So, thankfully, I think there are tr- three churches on the island of, of Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, that preach the gospel. But uh, they, uh, they have to step, uh, step lightly and, of course, uh, step faithfully because of the, um, um, the attitude of their government toward them. But... Uh, basically, we have to answer these questions. What does it mean to live uh, among, um, to live in this world and to interact with governments? St. Augustine wrote on this very topic in his very large work, The City of God. I'm, I'm actually trying to go through it ten pages at a time um, right now, which is, which is plenty uh, if I'm reading and studying other things. But this work remains one of the cornerstones of Western thought and and is, has actually been very formative to many of the things that we take for granted, the city of God. But basically, um, uh, Augustine is answering this question, what are our responsibilities here in the city of man? He says there's a city of God that we all belong to as believers, and so we're going there. But right now, for these 60 or 80 or 100 and a few years that the Lord gives us to walk in the city of man, how are we to interact faithfully? Uh, how are we not to abandon the gospel, but how are we to hold it firmly? Um, and so we have to ask the question, if eternity is real, and our focus is on eternity, if eternity is real, then should we even concern ourselves with the here and now? Okay? So there's kind of two extremes. There are some people who, who think that the here and now is so important that the main mission of the people of God is to alleviate um, suffering here and now. That's certainly a worthy goal. Then there are other people who, who seem to so stress eternity that what happens here and now doesn't even matter. Don't give people a cold cup of water because, after all, eternity is all that matters. Well, somewhere in between those two ditches is what we are called to do faithfully as believers. Now, clearly, we don't want to simply just make earth a more comfortable place to go to hell from, right? We don't want to do that. That's, that's not the calling of the Christian. The gospel, has to be, uh, at, the gospel has to be the point of our charity, but people will not be interested in our gospel message if we're not living out, if we're not doing the very thing that we talked about this morning. We can't be only hearers of the Word. We have to be doers. Our faith has to be active. We have to work out our, our faith. Uh, make our calling and election sure. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, allow, allow the things we believe to motivate ourselves to compassion and to love for neighbor. These things have to be, we have to hold the gospel with both of those hands. So St. Augustine clearly believed that we have responsibilities here and now. And of course the Bible teaches this. But what's going on is that he's living in a very interesting historical time. He's writing in, uh, in the aftermath of the fall of the Roman Empire. What was so great and so large and reached such heights, this Roman Empire eventually became a morally decadent society. They, they declined under some, some leadership and eventually in 410, in the year 410, they were overrun by the Visigoths. And, and so in the aftermath of this, this great nation crumbling, 
There were a lot of questions. People had a lot of questions. Christians had a lot of questions. I would imagine that if something happened to our nation and our nation just somehow failed, we would begin to have to readjust some things because we're the people who all the time sing songs about how God shed His grace on thee. And then what happened, Lord? If, if, how could you allow you know, our country to, to fail or to falter? You know? Well, the reality is, is that countries, governments come and go, but the city of God remains forever. And so that is our ultimate home. That's where we're placing our ultimate hope, not in the governments here and now, but in the city of God. Uh, Many people, as a matter of fact, during this time, were blaming the Christians for the fall of Rome. They were saying, if we had not turned away from our gods, you know, basically what happened in the year 313, okay, we're getting into a little bit of history, but officially the Roman government became tolerant of Christianity. And so Christianity began to flourish a little more because there was no persecution going on sanctioned by the state. And so what happened is Christianity kind of started to to rise and to reach a kind of prominence and it was even kind of endorsed in some unhealthy ways by the government itself. And so when the when the government falls, people start looking around to the Christians and saying, if we hadn't turned to your God, If we had just kept with our gods, if we had just kept with our pagan gods, maybe they would have protected us. But when we started becoming more Christian, that's when everything went wrong for us. Okay, They start blaming the Christians for this. Of course, Nero did the same thing. Uh, Some historians say Nero, have you ever heard the, the phrase Nero fiddled while Rome burned? Okay, Uh, there's actually this other phrase that came out of this time. Um, Someone I can't remember who said they you will name your sons Paul and your dogs Nero. Okay, Um, people didn't like Nero. And actually, you know, dogs are very affectionate pets to us now. But back then, dogs were not the lovable pets that we know them as here in the United States, man's best friend. And so people so hated Nero, and, and of course Paul was a, was a great figure in the church. They said, you will name your sons Paul and your dogs Nero. I actually knew a, a professor who named his dog Nero just for this purpose. But anyway, um, uh, very interesting things here. Nero blamed the Christian. He actually, some, some people even said that he set the city on fire just so that he could blame the Christians. I don't, you know, their historians dispute that. But anyway, um, moral decay. It was not the uh, a turning to to God, uh, not not a turning to the God of the Bible that that led to the decline of Rome. It was some other factors, some moral decay, uh, uh, some other things like that, perhaps, uh, and just some geopolitical things that were happening. But in the same way. In the same way, we've got to turn to Ezra. And some of the things uh, that, that we see uh, fleshed out in, in, uh, in the city of God kind of happen, or we, we get some pictures of it, in Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, God's people were, have, were, were put under different regimes. You think about it, what happened just before Ezra and Nehemiah when things get so good under Cyrus. You think Cyrus, Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Ezra opens up with Cyrus saying, hey, go back to your city, rebuild your temple, even take some treasure from the treasury to do it with. Wow, religious tolerance, religious toleration. As a matter of fact, the government is even helping us out. It's even funding what we're going back to do, to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. Wow, this is kind of neat. Well, what happened just before Ezra and Nehemiah? Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel in the lion's den. The fiery furnace, right? This is not exactly 
good times. When you're getting thrown into furnaces. When you're, uh, when you're told that you have to eat the king's meat and it's actually against your religion to eat the king's meat. And, and Daniel and his uh, compatriots, of course, go on a diet and the Lord takes care of them. The Lord sustains them through this, this weak diet of vegetables and then the Lord sustains them through the lion's den and the Lord sustains him through the furnace, the fiery furnace. The point is even when the government is against you, faithfulness Faithfulness to the God and faithfulness to the gospel is what you're called to, come what may. And here we look and we see in Ezra, these are good days. These are good days. These are kind of like the days that we live in now here in the United States where we don't have to worry about being thrown into a, a lion's den or a, or a fiery furnace. What is our responsibility before God when the governments are tolerant What is our responsibility before God? Should we ever reach a day when the government is not so tolerant? Well, the the responsibility is this. Obey God, come what may. Be faithful to Him no matter the level of sacrifice. So here's our point number one. God is in control no matter who's in charge. I hope that little play on words makes sense, what I'm saying. God's in control no matter who's in charge. Okay. Ezra chapter 1 says this. We'll read uh, a number of of verses here, maybe most of chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Remember, we talked about this last week, that everything that's taking place here in Ezra is like a direct fulfillment of the things that we read about in Jeremiah is actually uncanny. It's almost as if God is real. It's almost as if He's in control. The Lord stirred up, you'll see this theme, by the way, you'll see this theme all the way throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, that whatever happens among the leaders of the people is actually being superintended by God. He's actually pulling the strings of the hearts of the people who are in charge because He is that sovereign. It says this, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, So that, it's a purpose statement. Why did God stir up his heart? So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And also he put it in writing. Remember this morning we talked about how the culture is trying to change our wills. Trying to change our sets of desires and our value system. Well, God can do that too, right? He does it to us when he regenerates us, when he makes us alive. When He makes us want Him for the first time, God opens the eyes of our heart. It's a work of Him. We respond to Him in repentance and belief. God changes wills, but the culture is trying to change our will too. God does it in a more powerful way. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem. This is the the head of the state who's not a believer in Yahweh. He's not a believer in God, and he's saying, He's told me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold. Wow, he's saying, open up the treasury and give these people what they need to do this task. With goods and with beasts, 
besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. You see that phrase again? God is not only stirring up the spirit of the, the leader of the country, He's stirring up the spirit of the people of God. Why? To do what God wants them to do, to bring Him glory. Friends, we need that. We need God to stir up our spirit so that we as a church can do what God wants us to do, to bring Him glory among our neighborhood and among the nations. It would be an appropriate prayer tonight if we ask God, would you stir up our spirits? Would you stir up our spirits so that we might do what you want us to do? Then rose up the heads and, and the Lord, uh, everyone whose spirit that God had stirred up to, to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, verse 6, and all who were about them, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts and with costly wares besides all that is freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. So Cyrus restores to God's people what was theirs, what was stolen from them by the previous king. Cyrus the king of Persia brought these out in the in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And he goes into all the numbers and basically sends them on their way. Chapter number 2 talks about all of the families and the people that, that came up out of captivity and were, um, uh, went back to, to live in the land. So, a couple of points. What the Lord... Uh, we've actually mentioned these things. Let's see the theme that occurs theme that occurs over and over again in Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is that the political happenings of the day are interpreted as being sovereignly ordained by God. Now, friends, we've got to walk a, a clear line here. The Lord raises up kings and He brings down kings. Sometimes good men are in charge of Israel. Sometimes bad men are in charge of Israel. When the good men are in charge of Israel, it's a grace to the people. When the bad men are in charge of Israel... It's not that God is putting His stamp of approval on these people. He's just using them for His purposes. Does that make sense? So no matter who is in charge, God has a purpose that He's going to fulfill. So if you feel like the election that happened this, this week, or you know, even some, some would say it's not over, um, but if, if you feel like the election didn't go the way that you desired it to, guess what? The Lord is still in control, and He will use it for His purposes. If you feel like the election went the way that you thought it ought to go, guess what? God is still sovereign over whoever is in charge, and He's going to superintend the things that are happening at our little piddly government levels to bring about His greater glory and the purity of His church one way or another. So, for Christians, it's a win-win. Because the city of man is passing away. And the governments of this world are passing away, but the city of God will last forever. And we can be most at peace and most at ease when we are placing our faith and our trust, not in the governments of man, but in the city of God. I hope that encourages you tonight. I hope that encourages you tonight. Um, let's see. We see a picture of what political tolerance looks like. I'm on the second page now, by the way, at the top, if you're, if you're following along. Uh, sometimes I skip things because I say them uh, not in the order that I writ them in. 
The people had lived under political repression, right? They know what that's like. They lived under that in the time of Daniel, under Nebuchadnezzar, the the king who was actually very literally uh, driven insane by his own rebellion against God. But now a new day had come, and the Lord was allowing them to live under the rule of a tolerant king. Even the king's intentions, though perhaps self-serving, Use God for his own ends. You think about what's happening, by the way, friends. We don't need to be naive about what Cyrus is doing here. Yes, the Lord stirred him up. The Lord is using his desires. His, he's superintending his desires. But remember, just like in Genesis chapter 50, when, when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, they had a bad thing in their heart. But God had a good thing in his mind. And God was going to use the bad thing that his brothers did to him for a good and better purpose to be and to preserve the people of God. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. Both of those things can be true at the same time. And listen to this. We've got to be careful here. It doesn't say what man meant for evil, God polished up and used for good. It said what man meant for evil, God meant for good. God is ordaining the events of our country. He's ordaining the events of our lives. Why? For the purity of His church, for the purity of you if you're a believer, and for your sanctification, for His glory. He's doing all of this stuff together. But think about what Cyrus might be doing. As I I read in the commentaries and read about the things that might be happening, Cyrus is is a new king. He's just come to power. There's some some temptation for him to want to keep everybody at peace, right? And wow, that last guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't he wasn't so hot. He really kinda he really kinda was hard on these people over here, these Israelites. Maybe if I give them what they want, if I take care of them a little bit, it'll lead to the peace of my country. Because there are there are these people up in the north and these people down in the east and these people down in the south. I've got I've got you know enemies on all my borders. I need to make sure that my people are are happy. And taken care of. But even Cyrus's selfish desires can be used by God for his ends because God is that sovereign. He's that in charge. It says this in verse 3 Let him go up to Jerusalem and build a house. Not only is freedom granted, but, but an express religious liberty is included in the king's decree. And, uh, and then now I'm, I've caught up to myself here in verse 4. Let each survivor be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and with go- goods and beasts and free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I'm going to throw a word on you. Syncretism. There's some possible syncretism going on here. Here's what syncretism is. It's a mixing of different and often opposing religious systems to create a new religion. You think about what... what um, Cyrus might be doing here. I actually heard a man say something like this one time. See, this, this, this uh, man grew up Baptist, and his wife was Catholic, and so he got his, his kids uh, uh, kind of baptized in the Baptist church and then baptized in the Methodist church, and, and they kind of met halfway at the Methodist church or whatever, and he said, we're just trying to cover our bases. Really interesting way to think about it. You know, just kind of playing both ends against the middle. But that's a little bit about what, what Cyrus is doing here. He's saying, you know, these folks down here have their pagan gods, and the Israelites, they say they have one god. These people have multiple gods. These people have one god. Got some folks up there that, are, that follow this religion, some folks down here that follow this religion. Why don't I just play all the ends against the middle and make sure that if the god of the Israelites happens to be the real one, I want to make sure that I'm on his right side. And if the God of the 
you know, the, uh, the Amorites up here. Well, I don't even know if that's the Amorites were around in this time. But if the God of these peoples is the real one, I want to, make, I want to take care of him. Make sure he's happy and he's appeased. And if the pagan gods of these people down here, if that happens to be the right way to go, I want to make sure that I keep those gods happy. The problem, though, is that our God, he has a claim to exclusivity. Okay, so I've actually, you know, people sometimes give a, when you're doing some evangelism, people have an objection. Well, well, aren't all gods just the same and they're all true? Aren't all gods true and they're all kind of, you know, the same thing looking at it from a different angle? Aren't all gods true? And I say, well, there's actually a logical problem with that. Because if all gods are true, then you're saying our God is true, right? And if our God is true, what do you do with his claim to exclusivity? He, our God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if all gods are true, then our God is true. And if our God is true, he says that he's the only one. And so if he's the only one, then all gods can't be true. Either ours is wrong and one of the others is right, or ours is right. And the reason I'm here is because I think ours is right. Anyway, anyway, uh, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. So anyway, the, the main point is this. God uses the, the even sinful and selfish intentions of Cyrus to bring about his good purpose. Uh, God is so sovereign that he uh, can superintend the events of governments. Here's the point. You see this in bold. During times of religious persecution... The people of God are to remain faithful, no matter the cost. Our lives, our incomes, our health, our well-being are not to be on the altar. Faithfulness to God is more valuable. Faithfulness to God is more valuable. I actually had a conversation about this one time um, with, with, a, with a family member. I was, I was talking about, you know... If it ever got to the place in our country where they where they put pastors in prison, and I'm not I'm not trying to be tinfoil hat, I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorist here. But if it ever got there, that that it, that the religious tolerance scene was such that pastors would be put in prison if they if they you know sinned against their consciences and performed marriage ceremonies for people that we don't believe you know are, are legitimate marriages, would I go to prison? And I say, yeah, I'm go- I'm going to go to prison. Like I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in prison. This person looked at me and said, really? Like, like, really? Are you, are you really? Like, why don't, let's be reasonable. I said, no. Remember what I talk, remember we talk about what is a reasonable life? A reasonable life is living as if God is real and he is who he says he is. I'm going to go to prison. I mean, I hope, you know, hope they have cable or something or hope they <laughs> let you take your books in or something. It's going to be a grand time. That's why I'm trying to memorize the Bible, uh, trying to memorize books of the Bible so that uh, I'll just have it with me no matter where I am, like Paul. But during times of religious persecution, the people of God are to remain faithful no matter the cost. Our lives, our income, our health are to be on the altar. Why? Because faithfulness to God is more valuable. The name of Jesus is what we protect. But we have here in America a different problem. Our problem is this. During times of religious toleration, when we live in a place that's so prosperous, that's so affluent, we have other temptations. Don't allow comfort to lull you into complacency. Just because there is gospel access on every corner of many of our towns in the South 
doesn't remove from us the responsibility to tell others about the gospel. Don't let our prosperity, our material wealth, don't let the fact that that there are so many churches lull us into complacency. There is work to be done. There's rebuilding to occur. We're going to see that in Nehemiah. Everybody, everybody get in front of your house and start putting up bricks. That's what they do in Nehemiah. Everybody stands in front of their house and they work on their portion of the wall. Right? They got their hand on their sword and the other hand is laying a brick. That's what they're doing in Nehemiah. Everybody can't. There's rebuilding to occur. Advances to be made. Don't get complacent. Here's the second point. Don't let temporary setbacks uh, be to you evidence of God's absence. If you experience a temporary setback in your life, or if our church were to experience a temporary setback uh, for, for one reason or another, like COVID, or you know, I served a church one time that, that had a fire and the church building burned out, that's a temporary setback, right? Things happen. Influential people who were, who were powerful uh, in the church might, might pass away and there's a void left there or something like that uh, from, from leadership or, or teachers, that uh, big, great disciple makers. Things happen. Churches experience temporary setbacks. This is not to be taken somehow as evidence of God being absent. Uh, the people um, here experience this in Ezra chapter 4. Let's read in Ezra chapter 4. says this, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the houses, of their fathers' houses, and said to them, Hey, let us build with you. I'm sorry, the word hey is not in the Bible. I just sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I do some editorializing, but... You know, this morning I said, don't go beyond what's written, so I don't want to be guilty of adding to the Scriptures. Okay. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. Hmm, interesting. That's an interesting appeal. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of his Hardadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord. The God of Israel, the king, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So all throughout the rest of Cyrus's days, these people were doing a little bit of this and doing some discouragement and, and trying to frustrate the plans of the people to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an, an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen to this. Now they're writing letters to the king. In the days of, uh, of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and uh, Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of the associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, the letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. They start playing on some of the king's fears and insecurities. Many kings were insecure in these days. They were wondering where the next attack was going to come from. 
Rehim, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble Asnepar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria, and the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. Verse 11. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up uh, from you to, to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute. In other words, they're not going to pay taxes that they owe. Custom or toll and the royal revenue will be impaired. In other words, you're going to feel it on your bottom line. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that such a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and, and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in the form of in it from old. And that is why the city is laid waste. We make known to the king that if, you, that, that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, then you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. In verse 17, the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree. And a search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, that the city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt? Of the king. So you see what's happened here. New king comes into power. He doesn't know the context. He doesn't know the history. But what he knows is he doesn't need any cities to be rebelling against him because once the people of Israel get their walls built, once they get their walls built, then they could withstand an attack. Of course, the people of Israel are not interested in that. They're interested in worshiping their God. They've been humbled. They've been judged by their very own God. And now they've been allowed to go back into their town. They're, they're just kind of wanting to, to live before God as they ought to. But, um, but this is not what the king thinks. Uh, a trick is played. First off, the people try to trick the people of Israel. Say, hey, let us come build the walls with you. We'll come help. We're on the same team after all. Well, they get wise to that, and they say no. Next thing they do, the people try to discourage the people of Israel. So they try to trick them, then they try to discourage them, and then they just out and out lie to the king about them. Okay? They use some historical things that are actually fact that, sure, in the old days, uh, Jerusalem, you know, your kingdom probably would have had some, uh, some, some butting of heads here, but, uh, but it's not true at this moment. Then there's a little bit of an intermission uh, down at the bottom of the page there. God provided the means for the people to be encouraged and to obey Him. At every moment, here's what we learn, friends. At every moment, God gives His people what they need to obey. At every moment, no matter what comes to you, no matter what comes to our church, God will give us everything we need to be faithful to Him in the moment. He did this in Ezra 5 and 6. They're in this strange, strange little interim time where they're not able 
to keep rebuilding. They're not able to do what God had sent them there to do. And so what does he do in, in Ezra chapter 5? He sends them the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. So as, you, as you're reading uh, through your Bible in the Old Testament, you come across Haggai and Zechariah. They were prophets to these people. And somehow God used Haggai and Zechariah um, to prophesy to the Jews, says in chapter 5, the first couple of verses, to encourage them to get back about the work. Uh, the, another thing that happens is uh, God gave them favor. In chapter 6, Darius comes to power. The next king. So it went Cyrus was, a good, was kind to them, tolerant of them. Artaxerxes became afraid of them and told them to stop the work. And then comes Darius. And basically the people of God... Um, the people of God uh, play their enemy's game against them. They send a letter and basically says, Hey, search the records now. Won't you find a letter from Cyrus that told us that we ought to be here and that it was okay for us to be here? And he does that. And he says, Okay, y'all can continue the work. And so they, after the time of Daniel, when they were... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was there. They were in and out of the fiery furnace, in and out of the lion's den, all this kinds of stuff, having to eat or being told they must eat food that was against their conscience. They can't sin against God. So what are they going to do? Should they sin against God just to stay in, in the, the right graces with the government? No, we don't do that. We, we never sin against God. We never sin against our conscience. And now they had Cyrus, who was nice to them, Artaxerxes, not so much, Darius. The point is this. No matter who's in charge, God expects faithfulness of us. God expects faithfulness of His people. And here's the point at the top of the last page. The point is this. The timetables and the methods and the means of the Lord aren't to be judged by our standards. You think about what had happened. God was silent for 400 years between the closing of Malachi and the opening of the Gospels in the New Testament. 400 years of silence. Seemed like God was far, but He wasn't. He was still active, still loving His people. He had given them everything that they needed for life and godliness at that moment. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years to accomplish God's purpose. Israel was kept from going into the promised land for a period of time until after Moses died. And then, just now, the people of Israel had to be 70 years in exile. But the point is this, while we may grow impatient, God's plans are never frustrated. God will always give His people what they need to obey Him in every season. Sometimes it looks like waiting on, to, waiting on salvation in weakness. It's what you would have done in Artaxerxes. Sometimes it looks like some civil disobedience. I said social disobedience. I meant to say civil. Sometimes it looks like civil disobedience. In other words, the king tells you, sin against your God. Eat this food. And we say, I'm sorry, can't do it. I can't sin against my conscience. You can send me in jail. You can throw me into the lion's den. You can throw me into the fiery furnace. It doesn't matter because you can kill the body, but you can't send me to hell. My body doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. The city of God matters. And sometimes it looks like victoriously charging forward during the days of prosperity, like in Cyrus. you got... King's on your side. He gives you a safe conduct. He's going to protect you all the way back into Jerusalem. He's going to give you gold. He's going to give you animals. He's going to give you everything that you lost under Nebuchadnezzar. So charge forward in the days of prosperity. No matter what it looks like, whether we're, um, whether the people of God are in tough days or 
or tolerant days, good days, faithfulness is what God um, requires of us. So, as we close, I've got some principles from the New Testament that I uh, would just like to survey really quickly. These are kind of the, the main final points. Number one, God sovereignly ordains the governments for His ends. No matter who is in charge, God's in control. This does not mean that he endorses wicked rulers. All those days in the first and second kings when the, the bad kings were in charge, yes, God was using them for a purpose, but he wasn't approving of them personally. Romans 13, 1-7 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. This is where we have to do a little bit of hermeneutics, which means Bible interpretation. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. There have been times, there are times, when, when perhaps the rulers might be a terror to good conduct. When the rulers might tell you to sin against God. When the rulers tell you to sin against God, you can't sin against God. But in all other circumstances, you have to submit to the rulers of the land. Why? Because they've only been brought to power because God allowed them to. So we honor God by honoring our leaders, whether you like them or not, until they tell you to sin. <clears throat> Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. This is assuming that, of course, the ruler will approve of doing good as God defines it. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to, to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. It's a good passage on how we relate to governments. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent to punish those who do evil. This is assuming that, the, that, the, um, that they are actually punishing evil and calling good good and calling evil evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should... Put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. In other words, whether you like the emperor or not, whether you voted for the emperor or not, honor him. And in so doing, you will honor God until he tells you to sin. When he tells you to sin, you can't sin. <laughs> okay, these are basically our view of government in a nutshell. Number two, God does judge wicked governments. See, uh, here's what you could say, the entire history of Israel. Okay, I don't have a verse for that. I've just got a whole Old Testament for it. Okay, see the entire history of Israel, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, whether or not it's God's people or the nations, God's going to judge wicked governments. He will, in the end, make it all right. Here's our last point. The Christian is to be obedient in the city of man and to await the coming city of God. Hebrews chapter 11. Remember Hebrews chapter 11? It's called the, the hall of faith. 
where it recalls all these people from the Old Testament who were faithful to God, and it gives these little miniature biographies of what they did and how they were faithful to God, Abram and Moses and Noah, all these people. Right as soon as that ends, it says this of these people. These all died in faith, not having received these things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. He's talking about the city of God. They greeted it from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, friends, this is not our home, ultimately. God will make it new, but the governments of this land and the, and the things that we enjoy right now, they're not our ultimate home, so don't find your hope in them. We are exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. I love how the NIV says it, a better country. They're seeking a better country. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, oh, here it comes. I'm sorry. It's not only the NIV. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. The city of God. The city of man is important. We need to be good stewards of the city of man. We need to love our neighbor. We need to make life better for them. Wherever Christians are, life should be better for everybody around. But the city of God is more valuable Yet, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And listen to this, James 1.27. How are we to act and live? What is pure and undefiled religion here while we walk in the city of man? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, love neighbor, love the weakest in your community, and don't sin. Whatever comes, love neighbor, don't sin. Romans chapter 14 is for further study. If you'd like to do some homework, go to Romans chapter 14. Friends, hope this has been encouraging to you. Does anyone have any questions? I'd love to do the best I can. Mm. Um, it is not because they were the biggest or the greatest of the tribes of, uh, of, of the tribes of Israel, but uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to recall the passage, but I can't. Don't have it memorized. As a matter of fact, I think Ben, the answer to your question, why did God choose them, is because there was nothing about them that that, that He should have chosen them. He chose them to make his glory magnified through them and through their weakness. And friends, if God has chosen you, he's done it for the very same reason. Not because you are more spiritual, not because you are more godly, or not because he wanted you on his team. He chose you with the same grace that he chose the people of Israel to make his glory known. And that's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful gospel truth. Any other questions? I fear I've been long-winded. Let's pray. God, we thank you for 
uh, your grace toward us. We thank you that there was no reason that you should have sent Jesus for us. Just like there was no reason you should have chosen the people of Israel. They were not strong. They were not powerful. They were often wayward. They were so wayward you had to judge them. But Lord, in the same condition we find ourselves. We're wayward. There's no reason that you should have wanted us on your team. But yet you set your affections on your bride. You set your affections on your sheep. And you called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And you've given us an inheritance, the very city of God. I pray that we would place our treasure there. I pray that we would place our ultimate citizenship there. That we would honor and pray for our leaders. Lord, we pray tonight for President Trump, for the days that he has left in office. We pray for President-elect Biden, that you would use uh, these men in the times that you've given them to be in power. We pray that you would help them to govern justly. We pray that you would help them to know you. We pray that you would help them as they seek to bring the peace of our land and the peace of our country. But Lord, we don't place our hope in them. We place our hope in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.